This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for November 19th, 2020, the COVID tsunami edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. We've had a exciting pre-show morning here, here at the GabFest. John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes is wearing the most astonishing, amazing sweater, which I hope we we capture a screen grab of. It's like the coat of many colors, really. And we learned that it is a sweater that Bob Dylan once wore, but not, I think, not, I think not the exact sweater. <laughs> you no, know, it's not. It's not the exact sweater. That... It is a design based on a sweater that Bob Dylan once wore. How about that? But yeah. I would think that Dickerson would be a lot slighter than you, and you, you're, you're just broader than him. So you'd probably bust any sweater of his out in the shoulders. You just said Dickerson instead of Dylan. Oh, Dylan. I think, if sorry. you really I mean, want to get that joke in there, you got to get the name Nah, that's right. all right. We'll just leave it as it is. Um, <laughs> and that's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University, who are, who's herself been rather coy and and withholding this morning, but okay. So rare. Fine. I never withhold. I'm usually <laughs> the first to blurt out anything. Yes, it's true. Uh, on today's GabFest, we will have a show which will have nothing to do with sweaters or whatever Emily's refusing to talk about. We will talk about how COVID is swamping the country. We have a Category 5 hurricane of COVID. We have schools closing, conservative governors mandating masks, and we're all holding our breath for a vaccine. There was so much good vaccine news, too, this week. Then Republicans... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, Republicans, I guess we can say, continue to attempt to undermine electoral democracy in grotesque service to the pathetic president who will burn America down to salve his own fragile ego, part 78. We will talk about that. Then ta Coates joins us to talk about the new HBO adaptation of Between the World and Me, his magnificent book, and many other things, including the results of the 2020 election. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. It has been the best and the worst week of the pandemic. The second wave or whatever you want to call this entirely anticipated fall surge of COVID has arrived. Americans have been spending more and more times indoors. They have been gathered, often maskless, in workplaces, in restaurants, in gyms. And the infection rates are astonishing. One in 10 residents of Maricopa County, the largest county in Arizona, have had the virus at some point. And in Chicago, one in 15 Chicagoans is infected. New York City schools announced peremptorily on Wednesday that they are closing as of this morning, Thursday morning. Meanwhile, there's the great news about vaccines. Moderna and Pfizer have both announced superb results from their large-scale vaccine trials and are both going to seek and presumably get fast-track FDA approval for distribution of their vaccines. So, Emily, are you more or less cheerful about the state of this uh, pandemic than you were a week ago? Short-term, very bleak, and that matters a lot because I think a lot of people are going to die in the interim. And then spring and summer, with the timing somewhat uncertain, maybe not really until summer or fall, seem much, much better. So I guess the two key things to me are 
Can we break this insane impasse in which the Biden transition team is not allowed to meet with the top health officials like Dr. Fauci? Because we really, really need to get going on a plan to actually distribute this vaccine. Like that is a big undertaking. And then my second question is about testing. The FDA granted its first emergency authorization use permission for an at-home COVID test. And I still think that in these months between us and, you know, real vaccine coverage, we need a lot more testing so that people's lives can free up and we can move about somewhat more safely. And I feel like those tracks need to be parallel. They all should depend on much more centralized national planning than we have had. And I personally am desperate for the incoming Biden administration to be able to get started. Well, I'm sure you're desperate, Emily, but it, it is apparent whether it is will last that this Trump administration, even if they concede defeat in the election, are going to be bad actors, uncooperative with anything the Biden incoming Biden administration wants to do. So it feels to me like this is a lost cause until January 20th. And then there's some time that they need to ramp up. John, am I kidding myself? There's nothing. Do you feel like anything could happen between now and January 20th that will that will mitigate what's happening here, at least from a federal level? Yeah, no. Well, I mean, it, it's a uh, there's reason for despair for a couple of reasons. One, as you as we've all read in our favorite book, um, transitions are really hard under the best of circumstances. You have to hire 4,000 new people, do all the background checks, get 1,500 people confirmed by the Senate, and get your arms around a $2 trillion organization. Even though the Biden team has lots and lots of people with experience, and the man himself has experience, and one of the most important things he has experience in is knowing how to use staff. That's his whole life. He's been staffed. And so he can he can overcome some of the hurdles. But we have extraordinary hurdles facing the transition team broadly. All the ones that are in place under normal circumstances, then they have to go in and do reclamation in the various um, uh, agencies to figure out all the things that were left unattended to or broken during the, the Trump administration. That's just to say hello. Never, not even to get to your question, which is to use the power of the federal government to do, and everybody remembers when Zeke Emanuel was on here talking about all the complexity of getting these vaccines to people. I mean, all of the, including the temperature, I think it's the Pfizer one that has to be cooled to such an extraordinary temperature that there may not be enough dry ice to do it. Then to get all the the, um, sanitized glass that's necessary to move this vaccine, these vaccines around, then to get the number of nurses to do it, the needles and so forth and so on, let alone figuring out who gets it and how. And all of that logistics needs to be done, you know, even in the best of circumstances. And the only way I could see it moving is if there were some political pressure to blow through the president's uh, recalcitrance. There is none. There is not even none. There is enabling behavior of people who, even though this week we set a, a record for 250,000 people being dead, there is no speed about getting money to people or doing any of these things that I've talked about. It's So you have every reason for despair. Yeah. I mean, I I think there's a, there's a credible case that some people in this administration, and Scott Atlas in particular, should actually literally be prosecuted for taking actions to undermine and cause the death of people, to the failure to act in ways that are to protect the public health. Um, they're exposing people to disease and death. We're in this terrible situation where we we don't have anything like herd immunity, but we have community spread that is rampant. It's uncontrolled community spread. It's, it is 
the worst position we could possibly be in right now. And this administration has has absolutely chosen this. They have chosen it and they have been abetted by by bad public health behavior by governors and officials in the states as well. And and it's a tragedy. And as you said, John, it's 250,000 people. What is that? Twice the number of people who died in World War II, twice the number of Americans, five times as many as in Vietnam, almost 100 9-11s. It's just, it's sickening. Can I just throw in one other thing? That was an incredibly dark assessment on my point. And, 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 but I don't see how, um, because of the logistical challenges in front of us and because of the totally supine and enabling posture of those who will not step in and identify what the president is doing, which is denying this transition to go forward. Um, Celine Gounder, who's an infectious disease specialist at Bellevue Hospital, did an interview in The New Yorker and said, you know, one of the great things about these vaccines is that it, she said, hope is an empowering emotion. And that's one of the great things about these vaccines is that it gives us the promise that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And so maybe people will do the things that need to be done in the next few months in order to get to that vaccine period. And so this behavior that's not allowing the transition to go forward is stealing hope, um, which which means even the bright news in the news cycle gets um, soiled by the, what's happening. I find this so upsetting. I can't give up on it. Like, I rationally accept what you're saying, but it's just too disturbing. Is there any chance that some Republican governors like Mike DeWine in Ohio, who seems like he is on planet reality, maybe... Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas, everyone except Christy Nome. I mean, Larry Hogan in Maryland, like, could they help create some pressure? I mean, I the denialist posture of people like Scott Atlas make this seem totally impossible. But, you know, Tony Fauci is still there in the government speaking some truth to someone. And all the administration needs to do is sort of get out of the way so that the Biden team and the people Fauci has working on this and the people at the FDA can do their jobs and prepare for the Biden administration to come in. Like, it, it, that seems like it could make a big difference. Just you want to have everything ramping up, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to now take the opposite end of the of the the doom scrolling, which is to take sustenance from the piece you wrote in the Times Magazine about how amazingly the voting process, uh, the vote counting process worked despite the extraordinary challenges thrown at it and all of the resilience that came from the local behavior, which I thought was a great piece and a great thing to cling to in, in a time of uh, where you can um, you don't want to fall into despair. So your point is right, Emily, that people might if somehow this blockage breaks, you do have governors who are trying to, um, but they need federal help. They need money and they need coordination. But but there could be a kind of um, sense of the panic makes everybody, you know, work that much harder the way it did with the election. And so perhaps all of the ugliness that I tried to outline there actually spurs people um, once the blockage and you can have the coordination and the money come through. Maybe that, maybe there is a way everybody can rally and, and, create, you know, an amazing bucket brigade. But right now, I, mean, I know this is probably a like f- hopeless thing to say, but the irony of this is that the vaccine was the big Trump play. Like this was the only thing the administration and that he put any personal investment or attention in that we could see. And now it's coming to fruition and he could set it up so that it's like this big accomplishment and victory over coronavirus 
that he helped accomplish. He could go out the door in a much more sort of heroic state. And instead, he's constantly tweeting about his insane theory that, you know, the election was stolen from him. Like literally that, I mean, 100 that's a hundred times. That's what he's tweeting. About. That is a great point, Emily. And it's and it gets to something which I fixate on whenever we talk about the word vaccine. I have this the phrase in my head, which I think I've said on the show 50 times that vaccines don't work. Vaccination works. And we can have a vaccine. But if you don't have the logistics to get the vaccine made at scale, you don't have the logistics to distribute the vaccine, store and distribute the vaccine, you don't have a kind of a method for deciding who's getting the vaccine in what order, if you don't have record keeping about who's gotten the vaccine, and most importantly, if you don't have public trust in taking the vaccine and people being like, yes, I'm going to do it, you don't have a successful vaccine. And so all of the things that that go into that the, those things I just named are things that can be worked on now and that the president and his allies could could help with and could and as you say Emily could be that's such a great point they could take so much credit give them credit let them let them have a you know let the president like vaccinate Joe Biden at the inauguration like that could be the that could be the the ceremonial passing of the torch is the an official vaccination while Biden has his hand on the bible um and and yet it's just and yet the selfishness and narcissism and stupidity is like literally hurting us and will make the vaccination program less successful when it finally does come to meet us. And people know this who are in positions of power and they're doing nothing. Yeah. Whatever money we spent on it would be paid back 10, 20, 50 times because you'd get the vaccine done faster and better. And then therefore the country back to itself faster and better. And, and that is worth literally billions and billions of dollars. And it's it's just bizarre that Congress isn't saying, oh, yeah, let's throw $50 billion at these supply chain issues. And we're going to give Amazon and Walmart whatever they want to make sure that this this they, they can get this stuff done. It's confounding. It John, confounding. why are people behaving this I way? I know it is confounding because because you as a politician, it just seems so strange. You want to marshal the country towards hope. And so all the things you're talking about, David, the money you could spend, the kind of getting everybody involved in finding the way to distribute this, it, it is the first, you know, durable good news that has come from this when we've been fed a diet of phony good news. It's going to turn the corner. Mike Pence in June writes an, S, uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying, hey, it's only 40,000 cases. We've had a constant unnourishing diet of false news. And so now that there is good news, it's not just that the news is good. It's that it's also this battery into which you can plug the entire nation, which is dispirited and worn out, and say, even if, even if it's make work, you want to take advantage of the hope and plug everybody into that. That's what politicians normally are supposed to do. Instead, there is this we're we're going in the completely opposite direction as the president pursues his phony case about fraud, which puts a freeze on on all of, on doing all of the things to meet the pandemic, which is the number one issue facing America. Emily, just as a final piece of this discussion, uh, what's happening with schools is disheartening for those of us who are parents of public school students. New York City announced on Wednesday that it would shut schools um, the next day, just throwing parents into chaos. And we have this this terrible situation where in a lot of places, bars and restaurants are open, schools are not. 
leading I, I think our former colleague jessica winter tweeted can can my kid go to school in the restaurant instead um and what where what's going on and and who who should be ashamed of what's happening with schools or is it is it all fine <laughs> no it's definitely yeah. not all fine and pretty much everyone should be ashamed i mean the fact that the trump administration berated the schools to go back rather than providing money and supporting them and helping reassure people especially teachers and staff that it was safe to go back a lot of the blame falls on them. But the blame also falls on these cities and states, a lot of them big Democratic-run cities in which the teachers' unions got really, really concerned about safety in a way that, you know, was not necessarily borne out by the research and the science. We've seen more and more evidence that schools can operate safely. The Europeans, they kept the schools open and shut everything else and made education the priority. And I think you know, what speaks to me so clearly about the value of that is that you can pay people back for lost wages when you shut a business, but you can't pay kids back for the lost learning and the way in which this is going to just derail a lot of children, especially disadvantaged kids, disproportionately black and Latino kids like and low-income kids. We always know that the burden falls on them more heavily than everyone else. And so for me, this has been true in my city of New Haven, too, Public school kids haven't been in school since March, and now people are knocking on their doors trying to find the kids who have disappeared. I mean, I just think there is going to be so much cost to this. And someone just did a study published in JAMA, I think, one of the journals, in which they linked some of the pieces we've been talking about for months in terms of when you have lost learning you have lower graduation rates, you have more problems, you have lower earnings, those things also translate into lost life. Like, it is also the same hugely profound cost. It's just longer term. We can't see it. And I just find it deeply troubling. I understand that there are adults in school systems who are higher risk, and I absolutely believe in making provisions for them. But we have basically put adults over children and ask children to sacrifice a huge amount without, you know, really reckoning with that. And I, I, I do not think it's okay. So it is, it is hard to fathom this, but we have been podcasting together for 15 years, 15 years. It has been the most reliable thing on my calendar for Thursdays and the most joyful, honestly, like something that's brought me pleasure for 15 years, the companionship of, John and Emily and the companionship with you and the chance to think and talk and listen. It's been amazing. And so we're going to celebrate that those 15 years on December 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be online for a special live show. And we're going to celebrate by having three bottles of special wine to pair with each segment of the show. In honor of the 15th anniversary event, Round Pond Napa Valley is offering a three-wine companion case exclusively to GabFest listeners at 35% off what you'd pay in the tasting room. So you should text GabFest to 351-444-9463. Text GabFest to 351-444-WINE to get these wines and this incredible one-time-only price and join our party from the comfort and safety of your home. For links and more information, visit slate.com slash live. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will 
love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. President Trump continues to cling delusionally to power. The transition, as we just talked about, held in abeyance by his lies and his legal nonsense. And he's being buttressed by the complicity of Republican elected officials. But it is almost over, isn't it, Emily? Where do we stand on the legal challenges to this election? It's like it's once at once farcical and apocalyptic. Like I kind of feel like we're alternating between the the four seasons total landscaping and the Reichstag fire. It's like kind of where we're living right now. Yep. Um, but it, it's you did a, a rundown of the legal claims, which are pathetic. Yeah, actually reading them all made me feel better because they're so legally and factually weak. Um, and yet there are many of these lawsuits and it takes time for lawsuits to play out. That's the process. Um, so far, they have gotten nowhere. Um, you know, we were we had a real spectacle this week, I would say in two settings. One was watching Rudy Giuliani do one of the worst legal arguments um, I've ever seen or heard about recently in federal court, where he was trying to argue that a judge in Pennsylvania, a federal judge, should throw out the results of Pennsylvania's election, just not count all the results from Philadelphia in particular, and a couple other counties. And the reason for this was just kind of this completely unproven suspicion. You know, and Giuliani didn't seem to really know or particularly care very much about how the actual legal standards work for election law. Um, then they filed this amended complaint uh, on Wednesday, which they actually called the Second Amendment complaint instead of Second Amended complaint, which just sort of stands for like the level of just like joke that this seems to be. So, you know, that's like the farce part of it. 
Then you had this vote by the Wayne County Board of Canvassers in Michigan. This is Detroit and its surroundings. It's a canvassing board that's supposed to have basically like an administrative sign-off on the results of the election. It's two Republicans and two Democrats. And for a few hours, it looked like they were going to refuse to certify the results because of very small discrepancies in polling books not quite balancing, you know, by a few votes in different precincts. And there was actually a motion on the floor to certify the results from every community in Wayne County except for Detroit, which just happens to be where lots of Black people live. I was really unsettled by that because actually if the that county board refused to certify it was not totally clear what was going to happen. Like, then it would go up to a state board, but that's also two Republicans and two Democrats. And, like, what if they refuse to certify? And then you start having this perhaps reality of the state not having valid election results, you know, and even if Biden, which he did, won Michigan by, I think we're at like 148,000 votes, this specter of an alternate slate of electors from the Republican legislature. What was actually heartening about that evening was that after this county board said, we're not going to certify, there was just this outpouring of public comments on video that everyone could watch all these um, people who were organized by, you know, Detroit and Michigan activists who were coming forward and saying, like, no, we are disenfranchising us and calling out the racism in that board's initial refusal to certify. And they changed their vote. And I actually was kind of amazed like they cared that they were being criticized like people stood up for their vote and the people on this board cared so you can take that as kind of heartening too in the end except did you see the what did you see today's news they're now trying to get they're now trying to rescind their rescission oh my god no okay so i take back the the heartening i guess that's really (laughs) i mean right so i think look what we're seeing here is this interplay between The Trump campaign and the kind of insanity from the president about denying these election results. And then how far can it seep through the Republican Party? Because state and local officials are still answerable to state and local um, constituents. And what I thought I was seeing before this latest turn was that, like, this is a local board. Like, probably nobody even knew who these people were until this. they were suddenly in the spotlight. And then actually, like, they could be return to what to their actual duties and their kind of sense of civic responsibility but maybe now i'm being proven wrong because the the influence the kind of infection of the trump campaign's denialism is now reaching them i wanted to go through all the ways in which there's crazy making um from the president's claims to what he's actually losing about in court because there's a he's not only losing in court repeatedly but there's a disconnect between what the president is saying in his Twitter feed and what they're even asserting in the court cases that they're losing. A hundred percent true. He, and <laughs> and so for, you know, so one small example of that is that, um, you know, the voting machines he's saying are um, responsible for all this fraud is not actually the voting machines used in the parts of, say, Wisconsin, where he's asking for a recount. So, I mean, I think what the president is doing is and has done for four years is create a marketplace where your ambition is rewarded if you say insane things that match what he's doing. And that's what we saw in the canvassing board, I think. Um, and and so these attacks in the courtroom and Giuliani's totally non-legal jibber-jabber was not about actually any court cases. It was about creating this other world 
And that's the other world that all Republican leaders are in good standing and fully a part of. And just to make it clear what they're doing is they're saying the president has every right to use the system to follow fraud. And then what they're allowing is him to use the system to dismantle and discredit the system, um, which is what they are standing by and letting happen. Yeah. I mean, it's going to we've said this a hundred times on the show. At least I feel like I have. The shame of this is that when our electoral system finally does get cracked, which it hasn't done this election, but when it gets cracked by a more effective and canny authoritarian than Trump, it is not merely Trump who bears the blame. It is these people who have stood by complicit. Like they, they just need to understand and, and they are going to be responsible for the death of this system that they theoretically believe in. I think in their hearts, they do believe in electoral democracy in the United States. Like they want it to be true. They've all been rewarded for it. And yet they have chosen by their complicity and their inaction and their, their enabling to allow it to be mortally wounded. And one thing I don't understand, John, actually, is, I mean, I guess I understand why at this moment, but at some point soon, the Republican Party needs to find a way to purge Trump from the system, not because Trumpism needs to be purged from the system, but because people like Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton, who want to be president, who want to be the authorities in this party, need to get him out of the way. They need to have Trump not hang over them all the time so that they can then ascend to their spot where they get to rule it. And when are they going to get a chance to do that? Oh, I don't think for a long time. I think the first primary is to is to win in this new market that he's created. Uh, and we see it in, in the broader party. Um, and let's just be clear exactly what's happening is Republicans are saying the president has, has every right to follow these legal uh, avenues to look into fraud knowing full well that that's not why the way he's using the legal avenues, that he's using the legal avenues to create this destabilization and create a political environment and to somehow he can stay in office. They know full well that he's doing that. So that's the first thing. Then they know that he is using those avenues to block Joe Biden from getting ready to do a very difficult job, which is to become president. So that's the second thing that's happening. And then the third thing is that they are watching the president and his forces marshal this weird extra legal gambit, and they're not using any of those forces and energies to deal with a pandemic that's killed 250,000 people. This is all knowable. This isn't guessable. This is knowable. And nothing is being done. So if you imagine all of that, that's the market that's created for those 2024 candidates. And they're all playing in that market. And I don't and I think that's the winning in that marketplace is the first primary. And then you figure out whether Donald Trump's going to run in 2024. But you can't I don't think you do what you're talking about, David, which ultimately has to happen um, for many for a long time now. So that's super dark. (laughs) I guess what I was hoping or holding out some kind of idea of is that the rejection of these bogus challenges in court was actually going to have some kind of healing effect. Um, Jed Sugarman, who's a law professor at Fordham, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post this week arguing like, hey, you know, the judges are going to look at the the actual content of these claims and they're going to say there is nothing here. And then there's going to be this pile of court decisions that are going to say to the American people, like, we looked, we scrutinized, like, no fraud, take it easy, it's okay. But I think what you're suggesting, John, 
well, both of you, is that that's not going to matter because those aren't the authorities that at least Republican voters are going to look to. Exactly. And yeah. it's an, and nobody yeah. seems to find it in their interest to make those the authorities. I mean, and that's that's what's depressing. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the things we've look, I think the court system and the 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 electoral system will hold up. And, and I think Donald Trump will not be able to steal the presidency from Joe Biden. Joe Biden will become president. But the confidence that people have had, that the legal system, that the rules that we have, that the regulations that exist, that the these things are uh, have fully resisted Trump's assault, and therefore they're that they are in some sense solid is just totally misplaced. Like as John says, it's not about any normal rules. It's not about kind of the fundamental principles or the laws that exist. It's like they're it's this alternate reality, and so the. holding out hope that the kind of analytical, uh, rational world that we have previously occupied can resist it is is hopeless to me. Yeah, I guess I knew that. I mean, I I had two moments this week. I was reading one of the new lawsuits in Nevada and then this amended complaint that Giuliani filed. And they are both arguing for throwing out the results of a Democratic election, which one person clearly won by thousands or tens of thousands of votes because of completely unproven suspicions. And in the Nevada case, it's like some whole conspiracy theory about the machines that were used for verifying signatures. Like, a kind of statistical argument about the idea, well, there should have been more votes thrown out. In the Pennsylvania case, there the Trump campaign is actually arguing, give it us the envelopes that the ballots came in. Yes. We want to look at them and tell you whether we, you, the state of Pennsylvania, whether we think there should be more votes. Like, it's totally crazy. And, and it's so outside of the norms of democracy that it's just, I mean... It's like laugh and cry at the same time. Well, also in the in the court cases, when you read them, you it's like somebody discovering baseball for the first time, and so they go to the judge <laughs> yes. and they said, "Wait a minute, the umpire, check this out, made a subjective judgment about the pitch being thrown, and in one case, he even told the batter he was out when he didn't swing at a pitch, like." Making and the, the normal- rules of the game were there all along. Sure. If you were going to complain about these machines right. or signature verification, like let I, as someone who was reporting on this last spring, let me tell you, there were people who were willing to explain it to you. And by the way, that's a crucial part of election litigation. You don't let people challenge the method of an election afterward because right. that is disenfranchising. There's a whole doctrine about it. It's What's called, that called latches. 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 But it's an important part of the doctrine. And when you think about it, like, of course, that is crucial to the rule of law. And we should also just one tiny little thing to add is that the reason that the people who are standing by know better is not just the mountain of evidence before them that show that the president is using the system and the forbearance of his allies to destroy the system, but they know it because he's done it repeatedly in office. I mean, this is essentially what the question was behind impeachment. And while Republicans didn't find to impeach him, plenty of Republicans said what the president did was wrong. And what did they say he did wrong? He used the system, which is to say the national security apparatus, to seek to punish a political opponent. And that that was a perversion of the system under the guise of using the system, right? Because remember, he was. there were arguments that he was denying the money because there were legitimate reasons to, reasons to do so. It's using the system to pervert the system. And remember, real money's being burned here, not just faith in the democratic system, but the transition that isn't taking place as a result of this in a very difficult time. 
This is not like something you could just stand by, presumably if you were motivated into your chosen profession by a desire to work in the service of the common good. Can we also just say a word here about the firing of Christopher Krebs? Oh, my God. At the Department of Homeland Security, who was so stalwart about speaking the truth about election security. And now he's gone and his deputy is gone. And like this is all just part and parcel of how the Trump administration is going out the door. That was great. I love this John Dickerson carrying a flaming sword <laughs> on the Gabfest. Uh, I think you should wear that sweater more often. <laughs> uh, Slate Plus members, you get amazing extra content. Imagine you get that Dickerson content, but then more of it, more of it with your membership. Become a member by going to slate.com slash Gabfest Plus today. Get a bonus segment. Our bonus segment today is what holiday movie should do we want to make what holiday movie doesn't exist that we want to make and i actually have possibly not to not to oversell it i may have the greatest, <laughs> i may have the greatest idea that anyone has ever come up with for today's slate plus segment so just previewing that hey hey Tana hey, Tana. nice to see you thanks for having me and just so i'm clear tanahasi between the world and me came out in 2015 yes yeah a long time ago that's not that long ago. I was thinking, I would have, if you'd asked me, I would have said it was like 2012, but all right. Long enough that our kids are all older than when they read it, including your son. Yeah, that, that's what I was wondering. Well, don't, maybe don't, we should don't, talk about that on the show, whether the, you, okay, all right. The, the, I, I, I will warn right. you, that's not going to be as insightful as you think it is. <laughs> Everyone asks that, and it's a disappointing, the thing, and I'll just say this, the thing you, you guys should all notice because you're writers, the kid like was living in my house and so he never experienced the book yes the way an audience would because you know it was like rough drafts and i was always talking about it and i was always uh, so it was kind of when it came out it's kind of like big deal oh believe me so I... we, don't, we actually don't <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we don't have much of a between the world and me relationship no but it's it's like dad did you finish that letter yet have you finished that letter yeah. yet you still haven't finished that letter. Right, right. It, it didn't even rise to that level, though. It wasn't even that much commentary about it. It was like Just I was send going me a text. right, and he would read it, and we would talk about it, and then life would go on, and the book came out, and life very much went on. You know, that I think because because of the intimacy of what it achieves sometimes with readers, because it's a letter. The presumption is there's that level of intimacy about that thing. With my son, constant as though it's a reflection of our actual relationship, and it's not. <laughs> do you do you expect someday he'll come back to it though, and you know, like just with the with time, we'll come back to it and see it afresh. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, but um, I I cannot overemphasize to you how small a part of our relationship. That book is. But don't you think that's so healthy, um, actually? Like, he's not, yeah. he's just, like, talking to you. So. Like, that's what you were talking about and <laughs> yeah. thinking about. And, like, he, he It's totally fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. It's totally fine. The, right. the, you know what? I'm inter- We're just going to start this segment. We're going to use that. <laughs> now we're starting the actual segment. Hello, yeah. listeners. That was us talking before we started. In 2015, Ta-Nehisi Coates, that's who you've just been hearing, Ta-Nehisi Coates, published Between the World and Me which is his brilliant and influential letter to his son who was not paying any attention. No, that's not fair. <laughs> he was paying attention brilliant all Brilliant and influential along. letter to his son. 
On Saturday night, HBO is premiering a dramatic adaptation of that book. It's got a who's who of black America participating in it, including ta himself and Oprah and Wendell Pierce and Felicia Rashad and lots of other people, Courtney B. Vance. Um, they are going to be reading and interpreting ta book. ta is, of course, also the author of The Case for Reparations, the author of comic books and novel. He's arguably, and don't don't blush, the most important writer in America. ta welcome back to the GabFest. It's great to have you. And and I actually want to start with politics. I mean, my publicist would kill me if I didn't say the water dancers out in paper. Yeah, and that's the way. novel which I recommend. Thank you, Emily. When, when you have, welcome. You have so many, you have so many landmarks. <laughs> Do you feel any sense of relief at all that the Trump presidency is ending? Yeah, of course. Of course. It's always it's tough to hold, you know, uh, uh, two things in your head at the same time. Um, and that is, this is better. And wow, this is really bad right now. <laughs> you know, um, but there, there are levels of bad, you know. Um, I'd rather have, I don't know, um, a blown Achilles, then, you know, have to have my whole leg amputated, you know? Um, so, yeah, you know, this is better. This is better. So, Tanahasi, we were, I was reading over various essays you've written and things you've, interviews you've given over the last year, and it seemed like maybe there was a period before the election where you were feeling kind of optimistic, um, and then perhaps less so of late. And, I was thinking about that in terms of all the um, rending of garments right now within the Democratic Party about, you know, whether progressive slogans like about defunding the police are to blame for the fact that the Democrats didn't do as well in the down ballot races. What we're supposed to make of the slight uptick among black voters and slightly larger uptick among Latino voters of support for President Trump, kind of despite all of the racism and degrading of the country and just bad policy. And I wonder what you're making of all this right now. Um, You know, it's always hard in these racing, historically contingent moments to quite know how to pause. But I just wonder how you're taking it all in. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that that always, you know, inspires me and was inspiring me over over the summer is, um, you know, the mass movements among people. You know, and to watch those movements spread not just nationally but internationally. I mean, I, it was it was it was a thing to behold. I was in uh, Louisville to to go down there to to report on uh, Breonna Taylor and and her killing, and I would say eighty percent to ninety percent, maybe not ninety percent. Let's say seventy to eighty percent of, of the protesters, you know, were not black, and you know. This, you know, assume moments that some probably would render absurd, but I thought were quite beautiful. Um, at one moment, you know, at one of the protests, her mother spoke and one of the leaders of the protest said, OK, you know, we're all going to sing right now. And the song they played was Young, Young, Gifted and Black by Nina Simone. And all these white people with the black power fist up, you know, singing and nodding to Young, Gifted and Black. Now, th- there's a way of mocking that. Um you know, and talking about how people are, you know, opposing. And, and I guess, you know, there's always some level of that, you know, among all groups of people. But I don't think that would have happened 20 or 30 years ago. You know, posing's old. People are always posers. And, I, I you know, I, what I'm trying to say is I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that. If you were so moved to spend, you know, your afternoon or, or your day, you know, protesting, you know, the, the, the killing of, 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 of this woman in her own home, 
um, and that moves you to sing and, and, you know, raise a fist. I mean, I'll take it. I'll take it. So that that always, you know, made me feel good in terms of the Democratic Party. And, I, you know, I've never run for office. So, you know, I, I don't know. But what I'll say is if we are in a situation in which because I, I, I think, first of all, like I'd like to quantify this. How many Democrats ran on defunding the police? I don't think very many. I, I you know, I, I didn't pay to all of the attention, you know, uh, to the rhetoric of the squad. But let's say it was the squad. Let's say, you know, you got four right there. OK. Um, and maybe there are a couple more, you know, who I'm, who I'm unaware of. Maybe Bernie Sanders was against it. He was loudly against it. If defund the police is enough to counterbalance 250,000, you know, dead Americans, I don't I don't really know what to do with that. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't I don't like that's a, um, at that point, you know, you start looking at, at the board on which you're playing, because here you have a kind of anomalous threat that. You know, um, I believe at this point has been kind of enacted in Milwaukee, um, maybe something out in Portland somewhere. Um, if people feel like they are willing to tolerate, or large swaths of Americans feel like they're willing to tolerate 250,000 dead people, um, as opposed to, you know, a kind of, you know, activist call to, to defund the police, that those two things are equal. Indeed, that one is actually more of a threat. Than the other, you know, I think it's my job then to ask some questions about the society. <laughs> you know, um, right. I, I think it's, it's really, really hard to say to an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that, you know, she should talk as though she's in a swing district. Um, now, she can't, on the you know, other hand, go and, you know, talk to somebody that's in an actual swing district, say you should be talking like me. You know, um, I think it's really hard to say that activists out in the street, you know, who are not politicians and do not see it as their business and shouldn't see it as their business to, you know, be reduced to, you know, apparatchiks of the Democratic Party, that it's their job to make it easier for folks running. That, that's not who they are. That's not who they are. That's not that's not, you know, what, what they're supposed to be, you know, doing. Um, I would really resent it if I was a, as a writer was told, you know, you, you have to write in such a way you know, to make it easier, you know, for us to win, you know, the state legislature of Florida. I mean, it would it just restricts, you know, the lane and the amount of things that can be said, you know, with, with, within politics. I'll probably take it further and argue that's how we got here in the first place. You know, not necessarily if those policies are correct. That's not what I'm saying. But by shrinking, you know, the board and, and what we can think about and what's possible and what we're we're trying to achieve. So. Tanasi, I want to ask you about shrinking the board and also your own, um, the, what you've been doing for the last year. Because I, I really, A, when you left Twitter, I feel like that was deeply healthy. There's a quote, and I don't know who it's attributed to, who said, to be creative, you have to disappear sometimes. Yes. Which, which, and, and you just unplug from the madness. And you've said two things already. You said, look at the board on which you're playing and that you might have to ask some questions. How has the last period of your work and your thinking changed in the way you ask questions, the way you look at, at your work? That's a great point. I mean, I, I think um, so I, when, when Trump was elected, I, I, I was I found myself kind of and really, honestly, like even if it had been Hillary, I, I found myself in a, in a creative. Like with a creative problem, I felt like, you know, I had said something for the past eight to 10 years it had brought me a certain amount of acclaim 
And there is a world in which you keep saying and doing that same thing. And I just didn't want to do that. You know, I, I, I didn't want to write. I just I could not imagine spending the next four years just every week talking about how racist and corrupt Donald Trump was like I, I felt like that was going to like that would be destructive for me. I would do more harm to myself than I would offer any enlightenment to, to, to anybody else. You know, one of the cool things about, you know, writing about Barack Obama is, and you see this even in his reemergence. He's such a complicated figure, you know. And so what that does is it forces you to think. It forces you to, you know, it's it's a great mental exercise, you know, or I found it a great mental exercise as a writer. You know, I feel like I, I had Trump pretty figured out in 2016. <laughs> it was not going to be a great mental exercise to try to understand <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> what he was doing and why he was doing. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. It's very obvious. This is not, you know, um, a thing you have to wrestle with. So. Like one of the things about not being public is now you can actually go and, you know, just be curious about things that, you know, you were curious about and expand your boundaries and not have to, you know, write about it. And so probably two questions I've been thinking about a lot and doing a lot of reading on um, is just to get for myself a, a, a basic and clear understanding of economics and finance and how that how that works, you know. And I always thought that was a glaring gap in reparations. Like I could point out you know, what happened, but I couldn't really quantify it. I couldn't really explain it. And so, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading on that. And then, the, you know, the second question that I'm just beginning to tackle, but I'm really, really looking forward to is whether we have the ability, put bluntly, to create a public that is truly public and not based on just giving white people things or just privileging white people. You know, whether we have the ability to create an egalitarian public or not, because I think that's actually at the root of, you know, a lot of what's going on right now. I think it's very difficult to disentangle that from the toleration of, you know, how many, you know, folks have died, you know. Um, and I'm not saying it's like an A to you know B situation where you say, ha ha ha, it's just black people. So I don't have to do I mean, that might be part of it, but I don't think that's all of it. Um, it but it is, you know, hard to dismiss the fact that this you know era of, of polarization that folks talk about um, this era wherein you know the societal bonds seem to be fraying pretty much maps perfectly on the post civil rights era. You know, I don't really have the science you know about, about behind that yet, but you know, I'm, I'm I'm acquiring it, and just to be able to do that and not have to you know tweet about it, <laughs> it's kind of cool. Yeah, Tanahasi, how do you? Uh feel about the reemergence of the term black and the recession of the term African-American? Do you have views on that or why that's happened so quickly and so in such a dramatic way? Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, they, these things happen within the political moment. You know, there was this whole debate this summer about, like, this is the sort of thing I'm so happy that I don't have to be in. Oh, David, <laughs> you dragged okay, him you in. Pass. Back pass. Yeah, I don't pass. have an opinion, you know? Like, pass. This is, I, you know, I read about it. There was a whole thing this summer about whether, you know, the B in black should be capitalized or the W in white. And I just, I don't have to have an opinion on it at all. <laughs> I mean, do what you want. I, I do. Can I go back to something? No, just this notion of public, because I, I want to connect two things like what John was act, asking about and what Emily was asking about. You know, I, I think like this is why this idea, not not really a defunding the police, but actually um, abolition of policing is very interesting to me, because I think at the root of it, 
is a question of public safety. Um, and so I, 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 the way I would articulate this is I think if you polled African-Americans and said, when you see a police car coming down the street or you see police officers, do you feel safe? Um, I suspect that um, the numbers and the kind of things that would be elicited even in a qualitative conversation would be much more nuanced and much more complicated than you would you know, in, in other conversations. Look, if somebody just got shot or just got robbed, I say, yes, I do feel safer you know, when that happens. You know what I mean? When I'm walking down the street, not necessarily. You know, um, I think it would be a very nuanced conversation. What I'm trying to say is the very fact that African-Americans, either through their or black people, whatever we're saying now, <laughs> black <laughs> Americans, whatever it is, capital B, um, the, the, the very fact that you, you pledge your fealty to a state, um, to a public enterprise, the, the very fact that you pay taxes to it and, and it doesn't ensure you an equitable level of safety. And then you begin to look at other communities and you say, well, how do they ensure the, the, you know, an equitable level of safety? And the answer is not by jailing you know, uh, large groups of people. The answer is not by um, stopping frisking you know, random folks. Then you have to say, OK, so can we do something different here? Can we find some other way to, you know, I, I get it. Nobody likes crime. Nobody likes, you know what I mean, feeling um, vulnerable to gun violence. No one, li- no one likes that. But maybe we need to think about another way besides just sending the cops in. Um, we published this, this piece on police abolition uh, when I, I co-edited this, this issue of Vanity Fair over the summer. And the writer, jo- Josie Duffy Rice, she, you know, she made a, a great point that I think about a lot. And that is... Um, there's you know considerable evidence that you actually can reduce crime by sending in you know by by strong presence of, of of policing. But you know she went back and started looking at what that meant, like what those tactics you know actually were. And as it turned out, you know a lot of those tactics are, are things that got us in, in you know in, in hot water in the first place. So if you find, for instance, that stop 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 and frisk actually does have an effect on crime, is it okay to detain my son? On the street, just because you know he's walking somewhere, are, are you willing to tolerate the fact that just being young and African American means that you necessarily will have higher contact with the police, and that necessarily, you know, just on average, will lead to more violent contact? Folks are right to say, or to at least question, is this the way that you know? Why am I being made to feel that this is the only way I can be? made to feel safe within my neighborhood. You know, I, I think that's a that's a really good question. I don't know about the slogan defund the police, <laughs> but I, I like I like where the thinking is going. And I don't want us reduced to a world in which we can't think about that because some fucking congressman, you know what I mean, in Wisconsin, you know, isn't or because Max Rose isn't good enough to win, you know, Stat, Staten Island or doing whatever. Like that's Max Rose's responsibility. Don't bring that over to me and tell me I'm not allowed to have a public conversation about, you know, what does and does not make my son safe. Sorry, that's a bit of a rant. That's all right. Uh, Josie's a regular <laughs> guest on this show. We are also big fans of hers. Um, and I oh, really great. like that piece. <laughs> <laughs> She's great. So I want to push you a little bit on this. And I was thinking about what you were saying about reading and learning about economics and the way in which class as well as race is threaded into the concerns about justice that I think you have. So, you know, one of the pragmatic responses that 
I might give to what you're saying is, well, we have this country that we live in, and it has disproportionate power for white rural voters who tend to be more conservative, who tend to be troubled sometimes by messages from cities, by images that they see where protests seem to turn violent, even if that's only a tiny part of what's actually happening. And obviously, I'm not in favor of cutting off avenues of, you know, imagination and writing and thinking and opening that window. But I do wonder sometimes about just the pragmatism of what messages become most popular and most associated with Democratic candidates in a moment when politics is so national. And so even if defund the police is only really getting strong support from a tiny number of politicians, if white people in Wisconsin think that's the message of the party, is that a problem? And I was thinking about the civil rights movement, and maybe I'm wrong about this, I'm no historian, but I think that there was a deliberate effort to emphasize the more popular aspects of the civil rights agenda and that that helped bring white people along because like, there are a lot of white people in this country with this disproportionate voting power. And so I wonder how you take all of that into account because you were thinking about reparations like you were nuanced in your thinking about class and making sure that there you were talking about reparations as on top of programs that address class-based concerns more broadly, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, it was, and I, you know, it was never reparations or, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, reparations or a public option, reparations or it, it was never that, you know, um, and I never thought about it that way. So I, I, I just want to, you know, interrogate, you know, a couple things here. Um, well, let me let's start with the civil rights movement. Um, I, I would quibble a bit with what you said. Um, in general, the civil rights movement in its time was never particularly popular. I think about the Freedom Riders. I mean, they were just just totally, and you know, I got data on this somewhere. Just completely, completely unpopular. Uh, Martin Luther King was not. I'm sure you know this, Emily. I don't think I'm lecturing. It was not popular. In his, not only was Martin Luther King not popular in his time, you know, many consider his most principled stand against Vietnam. That made him even less popular. Right, right, totally. <laughs> you know, I mean, that time, you know, Martin Luther King is going into, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, and there are, you know, established preachers there, black preachers who hate him and want him to shit. Like, he's, you know, he's divisive even within the black community. And that's not to say they weren't concerned about image. They clearly were. They clearly were. And they, they clearly knew the power of media. There was this constant, constant effort you know, with his followers to maintain this line on, on you know, on nonviolence. Oftentimes that line frayed. You know, you saw that, you know, with the sanitation workers. I'm, I'm not arguing that they weren't, you know, conscious of that. What I'm trying to say is the reception to even that effort is a little bit more mixed than, than, than we remember. The second thing I would say is, I, you know, this is basically how racism ultimately works. And it's implicit in your question. I'm not saying your question's racist. But I'm saying the mechanism of it is in there. It's not that I say you're black and you can't do X, Y, and Z. I just make the cost a little higher. Just make it a little higher. So there's no cost, say, for uh, a militia in Michigan literally shutting down the state legislature. I mean, actual violence, right? Like with guns, literally taking guns and shutting down. There's no cost uh, for people who are a part of that plotting to kidnap the governor. Okay, Um, there's there's no cost for, you know, a kid crossing state lines, you know, shooting three people, walking blatantly past the police, the police doing nothing and and there's no cost. On on the contrary, that kid actually becomes a rallying cry. 
Meanwhile, I mean, you got what some folks that threw some rocks, burnt down. Let's let's take the most extreme. You know, burnt down a store, right? Burnt down a store, and that's like deadly. Not even the violence. Not even the violence. Even saying defund the police. Even saying defund the police is apparently 10, 20 times more costly than somebody actually taking over or actually shutting down the state legislature. It's very, very hard to win under those terms. Um, And then you add all of the structural stuff, right? Like, you know, which you kind of already mentioned, which is that, you know, there's disproportionate power already. I I, I have some sympathy. You know, I I, I really, really do. I I would add something else. You know, I I think... um, and I don't want this to come off too harsh. It's difficult to do everything at the same time. But I would not discount the fact that a lot of people, especially during the first term of, of Obama, really held their tongue and really tamped down on you know, that aspect of protest. And to watch you know, the rescue, this is me getting into my finance. <laughs> You know, to, to watch the rescue at other banks, no matter how necessary it was, and to see homeowners, you know, disproportionately African-American experience, you know, a historic drop in wealth. I mean, that does some things. That does some things to your faith in, you know, just let us handle this. So much was so consistently frustrated just by a recalcitrant, you know, Senate during, you know, Obama's, you know, first and, and, and second term. You know, people start thinking, look, it's, it's got to be other ways. You can't tell me just vote and then go home, you know, just vote and then shut the fuck up. Yeah. You know, you can't like you can't you don't you don't get it both ways. And so I think there are a lot of people in leadership right now, you know, uh, in, in Congress. And I understand. I get it. I get it. You know, if you can't get. I mean, think about this. You need the presidency and both houses to enact change. It's a high bar. And I I get the feeling of, you know, you're making it harder for me to, you know, clear this high bar. But, you know, these these activists and these writers, you know, and, you know, these, you know, left wing, you know, Congress people like the squad. Look, they they have concerns, too. They have people that they have to represent, too. I I understand. I understand the frustration, but I don't want to live in a world where I can't write reparations for the Atlantic. Where I'm being held. As I said, I'm being held to account. You know, for Max Rose, you know, I don't, I don't think that's fair. Right. And I, I don't think it ultimately gets us where people think it's going to get us. Well, right. It's about short versus long term thinking, yeah. too, and trajectories and arcs. Yeah. I mean, we have a basic problem right now, just, you know, in terms of a lurch away from. I mean, democracy was always, you know, a, a, a little chanty. I would make the argument that conservatively, you really can't talk about it except post-1968. And it's always a, a embattled notion. But, you, you know, you have an outgoing president that's doing everything he can to assault, you know, notions of, 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 of democracy and fair play. Um, and the party's going along with him. You know, you got chairman of the, of the Judiciary Committee calling down the Georgia, trying to, you know, disenfranchise People, um, we are in a situation where, you know, imagine, a, um, you know, the NBA finals and the Lakers just say, we're not listening to the refs, <laughs> period, period. We don't care what the refs say. I mean, how are you going to have a game then? You know, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult, you know, terrain folks are trying to navigate. Tanasi, what do you make of President Obama in this moment he has and what do you think the... 
What do you think the chapter, the next chapter is going to be like for him? Because he's clearly gearing up for a new chapter and book is part of it. But what do you where do you assess him right now? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't I don't I don't know where, where he's headed. You know, um, you know, he was always tough to cover because, you know, on, on and, and again, this goes back to the challenge. That's why it was a good thing. Because, you know, I, I disagreed so much, but at the same time, I just, I had incredible respect for his intelligence, for his basic decency, the importance of which has only, you know, been emphasized over the past four years, um, for his ability to, you know, communicate to a, a section of America that certainly I, you know, I could never, you know, imagine how to even begin to do that. Um, and yet, uh, um, I think that's probably his biggest weakness. And I think that is, you know, in, you know, not entirely blameless for the moment that we're in right now. And I want to be really clear about this. I think the very things that brought him to power, that made it possible for him to be the first black president are the things that hurt. I don't think you get one without the other. There was a piece in The Atlantic uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's like the prologue to the book. He said something to the effect of that he could not foresee, you know, what what was going to happen over the next four years. That one of the reasons why the book was difficult was because he just never expected things to go this way. And um, I just said, wow, how could you not? How could you not? I mean, this dude ran on, you know, building a wall. He ran on, you know, uh, a Muslim ban. He was not going to get in there and get, you know, become, you know, you're not, you were not going to give him more power and he was going to become a better person. What history says is that there, there are always, you know, cowards who will bend, you know, to the will, you know, of folks. And, that, and that's pretty much what happened. At the same time, you know, I, I just want to be clear. Had he had my perspective, he probably never would have been president. <laughs> So that's the tough part about it. You know what I mean? And that, that's the really complicated you know, thing about it. Man, watching him campaign, um, watching him in interviews, he, he is um, I still find him impressive. I still find him extremely, extremely impressive. Um, I probably, you know, blame the circumstance, you know, more than, you know, I, I, I blame him. You know, um, I think it may proved true, sadly, at the end of the day, that Trump was a more impactful president. I think it's easier to destroy than it is to build. But you're talking about three Supreme Court justices, you know, in four years. At this very moment, Trump is still trying to impose his will. You know, it's, it's much more, much easier to destroy any collective sense or, or, or wage an assault on any collective sense, you know, uh, on the idea of democracy than it is to build it in the first place. And regrettably, you know, just living in the country that we live in with the history it has, Trump has a great tool in the fact that, you know, he had a black president before him. Ta-Nehisi Coates, watch the HBO adaptation of Between the World and Me starting Saturday by the paperback of The Water Dancer. Of his novel. Because Emily the says Dancer. so. <laughs> Emily and Oprah. They're really for me. Yeah, my book club. One of them, is one of them is in Between the World and Me. <laughs> Thanks, Tanahasi. Good luck. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you, man. Thanks, Tanahasi. It's you. great to see you. Hey, before we go to cocktail chatter, listeners, I have a special request. As part of our 15th anniversary celebrations, we are compiling politically themed cocktails, and we need your help. 
Do you have a favorite cocktail that can be made even better with a little political soupçon, a little political political flair? We ask you to submit an original cocktail recipe with special props and acclaim for those of you who give us clever names. Go to slate.com slash cocktail. There's a link to a form for your submissions in your podcast player and in our show notes on the Slate website. Remember, we want to see your original cocktails. Is there a splash of apple cider in your President Adams apple teeny? A dash of liquid smoke in an Obama old-fashioned? Send your favorites our way. Check the show notes for a link to the form. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are having your politically themed cocktail, Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about? So I got really interested last year in um, a particular piece of labor history in which um, Joseph Yablonski was poised to take over the United Mine Workers um, in the, I think it's in 1969, and then he is brutally murdered in his home, and it turns out that the his rival for the leadership of the United Mine Workers, who was the head of it at the time, is behind this. It's a hit. And it's this turning point in um, American labor history, in particular for the United Mine Workers, um, which actually, in the end, Yablonski was a reformer. And even though he's killed, in the end, a lot of his reform agenda ends up um, being able to take place within the union in the 70s. Anyway, I got so interested in this story, and it turns out there's a new book about it called Blood Runs Coal. Cole, C-O-A-L, The Yablonski Murders and the Battle for the United Mine Workers of America. It's by Mark Bradley. I think it's brand new. And I just got a copy of it and started reading, and I'm totally hooked so far. So I'm excited that this book exists. Um, Blood Runs Coal by Mark Bradley. I thought there was a movie. I think there is a movie about this from years ago that's, like, not very good. Um, maybe I'm casting aspersions and I shouldn't be. John, what's your chatter? Uh, my chatter is um, uh, about two things. One is that as uh, listeners to this uh, gentle podcast have known all along, um, I'm uh, on the board of something called Covenant House International that helps uh, teenagers trying to overcome homelessness. Um, and every year we have a, a sleep out, which we can't do this year, um, which is to uh, just a night we spend in, in solidarity with those teenagers Obviously, because of COVID, we can't do it, but I'm still uh, raising money for it. So if you go to the blog at johndickerson.com, it'll have a link to the donation. If anybody um, is so moved, they do amazing work and they've been particularly stressed under COVID-19 because obviously more kids are in danger and they have to go through all of the protocols and all of the madness and they haven't flagged for an instant in taking care of um, these amazing kids who you know, once they take care of homelessness, are able to to uh, live incredibly productive and meaningful lives. So that's one plea. And the second thing is there is a, just a lovely little documentary on um, Aon Magazine, uh, the website. Uh, it was done by a woman named Charlotte Reagan or Regan. Sorry if I get that wrong. And it's called The Games Kids Play When the Streets Are Their Playground. Just a lovely little 14-minute documentary I recommend. My chatter is a story I saw in the Washington Post last week about Fort Hood. And Fort Hood is named after a Confederate general named John Bell Hood, a traitor, and also an incompetent. He was a really bad general, even by the standards of his own army, he was a bad general. Uh, but it is, this is a big 
fort in Texas. And there's a, now a proposal or a desire among some to rename it. Uh, there's a desire among many to rename it, and in particular to rename it for a soldier named Roy Benavidez, who's a Green Beret. And the Washington Post recounts why Roy Benavidez would be a, an appropriate person to name this uh, fort after. And it's about this incredible rescue he made of special forces troops who were about to be slaughtered in uh, in Cambodia during the Vietnam War. It's just an amazing story. He was, there's all sorts of details, some of which are probably not appropriate anymore, but he was a, his nick, his call sign was Tango Mike Mike, which was because he was known as that mean Mexican. His only weapon, he had a knife and a bottle of Tabasco were his weapons. He was the son of a Mexican-American sharecropper and a Yaqui Indian mother and performed this unfathomable act of bravery. I strongly recommend reading the story if you want to be inspired about about how brave someone can be and and also how awful someone like John Bell Hood could have been as well. So check that out. Listeners, you have sent us wonderful chatters this week. You tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest. I want to point to one that Mike at at Riefenberry sent us, which is a YouTube video of a of somebody who's named Kanazawa Kenichi, who I think must be a, an artist. I don't know who Kanazawa Kenichi is. I watched this video. A video is uh, Kanazawa Kenichi with a, a kind of flat metal plate, um, which must have some certain qualities. It's, it's sitting on some kind of platform and that must have certain special qualities. And he puts sand on that plate. And then he, with different tools, different mallets essentially vibrates the plate. And what happens when he vibrates the plate with different at different frequencies is the sand reassembles itself into shape. So it will reassemble itself into a circle or will reassemble itself into different star-like shapes just by the vibrations on the metal plate. It's mesmerizing and basically it's magic. I mean, it's physics and that physics is magic. So check the video out. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. For Emily Bazelon and a besweatered John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. Just a note, Emily had to go to be on deadline because she had a big story to work on. So it's just me and John. (laughs) (laughs) This is frankly mostly going to be just me. Weird topic this week. I don't even know where this came from. Somebody, somebody, I think it's Joss. I think it was our producer Jocelyn's topic, uh, which was what holiday movies should they make? Which I, it's just like, who knows? It's like a random, who knows? I mean, I had, I had a couple of uh, ideas. Um, John, you probably haven't had a thought chance to think about I this. I don't even understand this, but go for it. Okay. I'm going to I did, I did think I was sitting, I was sitting in my apartment last night, just like thinking, oh, which, which, what movies, holiday movies should they make? So I'm going to give my two bad ones and then I'm going to give, just hold your horses, the greatest idea that you've ever heard. So one is they should make the real Hanukkah story, which is that the Maccabees, the heroes of the Hanukkah story, are actually terrible, and that any any modern person faced with the situation the Maccabee of of that time would definitely have chosen the Maccabees opponents, who are these Hellenized Jews who had adopted kind of Greek practices into Judaism. They were cultured, they were sophisticated, and they ended up being murdered by these religious zealots. So they should make a a Hanukkah movie, which is really about like being on the wrong side of Hanukkah. That's number one. Number two, people talk a lot about the war on Christmas. 
I think they should do like a Red Dawn, basically the war on Christmas, where there's an actual war against Christmas. And they're shooting like some people are trying to shoot Santa and the, you know, the reindeer reindeers are murdered and the elves, the elves have to like fight in, in kind of guerrilla warfare. John, yes. Isn't isn't that what isn't that what and I've never plugged into this debate. Um, and I, I really want to channel Tanasi in in life, basically, which is his his unplugging from a lot of things in order to do the kind of deep focused work that needs to be done. I don't, I'd also like to, to channel into his talent, but if I can't do that, I'd at least like to copy the way he carries himself. And so in with that as the, the um, preamble, I've never paid attention to the argument over whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not, but I think that's in part, David, a part of what that debate of whether Die Hard's a Christmas movie or not, um, is your I know what you're saying is a much more fully realized Santa with nunchucks, um, but I think that's a part of that. Yeah. Okay. Now, everyone ready? Here we go. Greatest idea anyone's ever come up with for a movie. I'm going to. I'm just about to make uh, whoever this director is. I'm about to make his fortune. So there is a certain class of people, and I am in that class of people who love the movie Love Actually, like who genuinely. Have you seen the movie Love Actually? Do you know it? I can't John? remember whether I've seen it or not. It's supposed to be incredibly charming, and I don't remember whether I've seen it or well, not. Well, there are people who think it's incredibly charming, and there are people who think it's absolutely terrible. But it, ha- it has a huge effect. It is, it's kind of like the, what The Wizard of Oz used to be. There's whole classes of people. And I know them. I'm in, one, I'm in a family like this, and I know tons of other people like this who rewatch Love Actually every year around Christmas, often rewatch at other points. It's a it's this story. It's a set of about eight or 10 interlinked stories, all of which take place on Christmas Eve and all of which relate to love in various forms. And it's a problematic movie in a bunch of ways. I mean, it's, it's like, doesn't have any, there's, there's no gay couples in it at all, or there's no kind of homosexuality in it at all and no acknowledgement of it. There's, it's extremely heteronormative. There's basically no race in it. Uh, like no acknowledgement of, of race. It's, there's a lot that's, that's kind of gross and mishandled in it. But it this these interlinked comic love stories really work. And so here is my idea. My idea is... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.